Welcome to All Fired Up. I'm Louise, your host, and this is the podcast where we talk all things anti-diet. Has diet culture got you in a fit of rage? Is the injustice of the beauty ideal getting your knickers in a twist? Does Fitspo make you want a Spitspo? Are you ready to hurl if you hear one more weight loss tip? Are you ready to be mad, loud and proud? Well, you've come to the right place. Let's get all fired up. Welcome back to All Fired Up. I'm so excited to bring you another amazing interview this week. So we know that we're in the thick of diet culture high season. It's just peak intensity for weight loss pressure and appearance focus and it's literally everywhere. One place it particularly is apparent is in our social media and aren't we saturated with social media at the moment? It's part of our everyday lives and it seeps in. Social media really affects how we think about ourselves and it really affects our behaviour and you know one of the bugbears of my life is how social media really does impact on our body image and social media really impacts on our food guilt but it's really interesting because research in this area is a little bit few and far between so I was really fascinated when I was contacted by my guest this week her name is Hilary Smith and she's doing a Masters of Health promotion and what she's actually investigated is the impact of social media on our so how our body image disturbance actually impacts on our eating competence so me and Hillary had this fascinating discussion because her research is literally researching us. So she's targeting with her research the women who are in the particular age group between mid-20s and mid-40s and what their lives are like and how social media is really having an impact on how we see our bodies and that how we see our bodies really affects our eating behavior and that's what's so fascinating and you know what spoiler alert it's not affecting our eating behavior in a positive way it's not having a good impact so i'm really looking forward to bringing this wonderful discussion with hillary you won't find hillary you know plastered all over instagram she's she's a real quiet achiever but as you will hear she is a phenomenal woman a pole dancer who would have guessed i didn't actually know that before we started chatting but just such intelligence and such a great drive to bring real meaningful change in health policy from the research that she's doing. I'm so inspired that there's women like her in the world doing what she does. So without further ado, I bring you me and Hillary. So Hillary, thank you so much for coming on the show. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to crack in. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it that's firing you up? Look, I am really excited to talk on this podcast today because I've listened to, I think, the whole series so far. And every time you have in that introductory section, the bit where it says, does Fitzbo make you want to Spitzbo? I'm sitting on my, like, on my couch listening to the computer going, yes, it does. It fucking does. Oh my God, it does so hard. So finally, I'm here to get to talk about just how hard Fitzbo makes me want to Spitzbo. <laughs> I know it's a bit of a lame thing that I came up with just came out of my mouth but it does it just makes me so mad and it's great mm. to talk to someone who gets the anger involved with Fitzbo. Yeah no I super super do I've gone so far as to undertake an entire higher degree <laughs> just to prove how shit Fitzbo is basically. <laughs> Oh my God, I love, I absolutely love the dedication to just proving Fitzbo wrong. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if you know, part of what I do in amongst my range of, you know, professional and non-professional roles and hobbies and interests is that I pole dance. Oh, wow. Um, and so I've been doing that for eight, eight or nine years now, I think, starting out just as a hobbyist and then becoming a bit of an obsessive and then stepping a little back from the level of obsession and then continuing training and performing but also teaching and it's been it's been a massive journey for me so someone who has always understood and aligned with concepts around social justice but hasn't always understood how health and weight sits in that and has more recently come to health at every size approaches yeah. pole has definitely been a really big part of my journey in that because you know it's an aesthetic sport <laughs> yeah 
So, you know, there's a lot that happens in the poll community that is around empowerment and that is around, you know, everybody can try this and everybody can do this and people can all just revel in their own sexuality if that's what they want to get out of this form of dance yeah. or they can revel in their own whatever else they want to get out of it because there are many people who argue that pole doesn't have to be sexy, which is totally fine. Mm. So what you're saying is that there's many uses of the pole. Yeah, absolutely there are. But it's very interesting to be in a community which celebrates bodies so much on the one hand, but then is also an aesthetic sport on the other. Yeah, it's so like the two worlds kind of clashing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so definitely it's a community which has been very much aided in its international growth through social media. You know, it's a movement which started in strip clubs and where women were creating moves just as they had this apparatus. Well, can I hang off one knee from this thing or can I flip upside down on this thing or how can I join this thing to this thing? But since it's moved beyond strip clubs and into a range of other sort of health and fitness studios, it's mm. become something where the repertoire, I suppose, has exponentially expanded and that's been largely due to just how on social media so much of the community is. You know, you follow all of your poll idols and you see them doing this amazing new trick where they seem to be hanging by one toenail kind of thing. And you think, wow, I've got to try that. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's an environment where lots and lots of people who are very focused on this aesthetic sport now all start coming together to share ideas, which is great. Yeah. yeah. It comes at a bit of a cost because oh. every time you see someone post something that they've been trying, you see a number of comments underneath going, oh my God, I wish I had your abs or okay. oh my God, I wish I had goals. And it's, it's at least as often, in my experience, it's at least as often about the body that they're seeing performing as it is about the trick that they're seeing performed, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a, it's a function versus appearance type mm. thing. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we see, we see the same thing. Social media is sort of renowned, isn't it, for focusing on aesthetics and appearance. Completely. And yeah, we, and, but it's great to know that in the poll community there's people who look not just at the aesthetic but at the function like wow look at the strength or look at the yeah, yeah um, all of that and there's, there's a lot of room to discuss things like joyful movement in poll which is great that's <laughs> 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 what motivated me towards my studies was that other side of the coin where so many people were sort of talking about how they weren't going to be real pole dancers until they had abs or they were never going to be as gorgeous as so-and-so. Oh. And it was detracting from all of that other skill development and physical yeah. goal attainment in terms of what can I do as opposed to how can I look. That was part of what got me thinking I need to, I need to do something in this space. That and the fact that so many people seemed to be following really spurious, dubious nutrition advice from people who may not actually have any quals in the area of nutritional <laughs> Yeah, another way that, you know, social media has upheld this kind of woo culture. Mm, absolutely. So the woo culture is alive and well in many online communities and the pole dance community is no exception. <laughs> I have to um, say this, that there's a lot of woo in pole. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's also woo as in cheering, which obviously is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> we must differentiate the two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I suppose in getting to my thesis, what I wanted to know, like I started thinking about that community, but then I started just looking around me more broadly and looking at people my age and people older and people younger. And I started to want to know what was happening to our food relationships and our body relationships in a post-fact world. Because there's just so much post-fact shit on social media. Yeah. You know, fake news is one side of it. But this idea that abs are greater than credentials <laughs> is another <laughs> The idea that, you know, anecdotes are law. This one person had this experience and they succeeded. Therefore, if I don't succeed, it's just because I'm a failure. It's not because there were a whole range of things happening for that person <laughs> that yeah. in my context. Oh, absolutely. That, that is everywhere. The N equals one problem. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think the problem, you know, you can speak about that in those academic terms, but I think that then turns a lot of people off. Like, oh yeah, well, yeah. why shouldn't I believe a story? You know, that person's inspirational. They've got really white teeth and they smile really well. <laughs> They've got this awesome team of social marketers behind them. <laughs> I know. Well, there it is, all right? They're selling the dream. And yeah. science sometimes, you know, doesn't sell the dream. So social media has stepped in and said, here's the dream. Mm -hmm. And it's also really glamorous and who wouldn't want that? 
yeah exactly Mm, it's full on yeah so there's a little bit of my background I suppose in terms of how I I got to this stage and then you know I did you know it's a thesis so it's the formal academic piece of work where you need to do a literature review to figure out what is known and what isn't known and so on and so forth and what I this is for your master's in health promotion yes correct yeah yeah Yeah, sorry I should have said that (laughs) (laughs) we got it out Yeah, so in doing that, I sort of, where I got to in terms of what do we know and what don't we know is that we do know that body image relates directly to eating behaviour. So if you have body image concerns, you're much more likely to diet or restrict your food and all of those kinds of things. That's pretty well established. We do know that body image and social media have relationships with each other. So we know that what people see on social media directly influences how they feel about their bodies. But we don't actually, or we didn't until I did my study, have anything that actually joins the dots between what a person sees on social media and how that moves through the prism of body image into actual eating behaviour. So So you're you're doing the the link, like how it actually influences how we eat. Yeah, correct. So most academic work around health promotion and health communication so far that looks at social media has stopped at knowledge transfer. So can you, can you explain that in English? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what they're saying is, look, let's see social media as this great tool that has all of this cut through and that can reach masses in ways that we've never been able to using traditional non electronic non-mass communication means yeah yeah and so we let, can tell people lots of stuff yeah exactly let's look at how much health information we can pump out there and assume that people will just act on off their own free will <laughs> oh god i know yeah that's never going to end well yeah no i mean health education is definitely part of health promotion people need to know what they need to know yeah health promotion is so much bigger than that yeah. You can't just keep informing people of things and expecting that without other things around them changing, that they're going to be able to act on all of that information. Then if you, bring that, yeah. if you bring that sort of post-fact world element in, uh-huh. <laughs> you've got to ask the question, well, how are people going to act on any information when there is so much contradictory stuff out there? Yeah, we, yeah you can like look on social media and in less than three minutes get seven completely contradictory facts about nutrition, about carbs, for example. Carbs are great, they're fine, they're the devil, they're killing you, they cause autism. Yeah, or the one that I heard this week, which was amazing, was someone coming out saying, carbs, yes, you should cut them out, and if you cut them out, you're increasing your risk of insulin resistance, but that's not going to matter because you're never going back on carbs anyway, so you won't need insulin. (gasps) Oh, my God. Like, just fuck off. <laughs> that is just such awful, awful, awful information to be putting out there. Oh, God. But it's a very well-respected diet program, which, you know, many people choose to follow. And oh, I have follow uncritically because we don't skill them in how to actually interpret this information. Yeah, yeah. Well, people, not everybody has the ability to dissect what information is real and what is not. And yeah. Ah, it's terrifying. Mm, It is. (laughs) So that was part of what I looked at in my study. The other thing that I did in terms of figuring out what we didn't already know, so we didn't have a link between what's on social media and how that translates through to eating behaviour. The other thing that we didn't really know was what's happening for women above that sort of undergraduate university age and below perimenopause age. So Mm. there's two-ish decades in the middle there where there hasn't been a lot of academic attention to what's happening for those women in relation to their body image and in relation to their social media use. I found a couple of articles that said women at that age probably aren't that worried about their body image because they've got other shit to do. Are you serious? (laughs) Yeah. You know, you're having children and stuff at that time. You're worried about creating a new generation. You're not thinking about what you look like. Well, that should be the case. Absolutely. Women between the ages of what, what age are you saying? In my study, I looked at 25 to 44. Yeah, okay, yeah. So that's when all the shit's going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's uh, Is that what you found? That that far from being blasé and not at all concerned, did you find that there's a lot of concern? There's a lot of concern. Yeah. So I'll get into the details of the study in a minute, but I basically found that whether you were 25 or 44, statistically, you were exactly as concerned as each other about your body image. Oh, God, that's so sad, isn't it? Yeah, I know. It's awful. And how concerned? 
We used a measure, I say we, myself and my supervisors, used a measure called the social media scale, which was created by Lily O'Hara, who's a strong, strong critical health promotion and health at every size advocate. And awesome, yeah. My supervisor. It was created by her and some of her colleagues. And it's an eight item scale, which looks at things like, it's a scaling question. So it's like never, sometimes, always, essentially. Things like, I feel I have to look as thin as possible in photos before I post them to social media. Social media images of other people's bodies make me feel insecure about my own. I think about what others are going to think of me before I make a social media post of my body, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and how, how concerned were people? People were, <laughs> like we had, the scale is a range. So you can score anywhere between eight and 40 on this scale. And we had women, we had very few women scoring eight and quite a number of women scoring between sort of 36 and 40. The overall average was 25.3 across the sample. Mm -hmm. So beyond the halfway point in terms of getting towards that higher level, there isn't a cutoff for this scale yet. So I also measured eating competence and eating competence has a clinical cutoff point of 32. Mm -hmm. But that cutoff doesn't exist with the social media scale. It's more just a relative, you know. Yeah, yeah. it's just like not concerned to pretty concerned. And you're yeah. kind of saying they're just over halfway concerned. Yeah, on average. But within that, there are some women who are super, super concerned. Oh. Yeah, which is awful. Yeah. How many people were you looking at? In my total, I did a Facebook recruitment over four weeks and I got 1,001 responses in total. Mm. which 963 met all the inclusion criteria. So that wound up being my study sample of 963 women across mm. Australia between 25 and 44. All right. So this is us, right? This is, yeah. this is women. Yeah. And, oh, my gosh, that's a, yeah, we are definitely concerned mm. to the point of, of social media use is impacting. Oh, and when you said you measured eating competence, what does that mean? So eating competence is another measure that's used both in clinical settings with diet in dietetics and also in research to measure how well a person relates to food and the concept of eating how well they're able to manage things like their hunger and satiety and their energy needs how they feel eating in a range of settings and so it's basically looking at so I just want to clarify the eating yeah. competence stuff is not like eating healthy this is no, actually no. yeah about how your relationship food is and how in tune you are with your own body and how relaxed you feel correct so i deliberately didn't want to assess health or nutrition knowledge <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> sorry i really wanted to know how people actually feel about and relate about food much more interested in the psychology of nutrition than the reductive carbs versus protein versus fat side of nutrition oh we need so much more research with people like you who are actually interested in people's relationships with food well that's what actually promotes health knowing what protein is and what carbs are and what fat is isn't something that the general population needs at a particularly in-depth level in order to be able to know what they need to eat. There have been so many studies into, and admittedly some of the studies that were particularly compelling were done before human research ethics were really a thing. <laughs> <laughs> there have been some amazing studies done into, if you don't teach kids about nutrition and you just expose them to this wide variety of foodstuffs every day for two months, what will happen? Will they only eat the one food over and over and over again? Or will they actually figure out for themselves what all the foods taste like? And then beyond that, figure out what foods they feel like to meet their physiological needs without adult intervention. And the answer is they will. Oh, we need to put that study in the show notes. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. I'll drag the research out later on, but I'll get that for you because it's super interesting. See, people would disagree with that, wouldn't they? Because that oh, just yeah. sounds, that sounds wrong. Mm, it does completely oh no i need to know all about my macros and i need to know about every possible dietary source of b12 i don't really know what b12 does but i've been told it's important <laughs> mm, mm. what you're saying is and the research props up that whole idea that if we just really tune into our bodies we naturally gravitate to a big variety of food we don't mm. stick with you know one thing and we take care of our health without being told to Correct. Yeah. A human organism is a fascinating thing. Animals generally are fascinating in the way that they just know how to get the food that they need to meet their physiological requirements. 
yeah. the diet culture massively, massively messes with that. Mm. So I, did, I didn't want to try to elucidate anyone's comments around how good they are at avoiding the, not, the bad foods, for example. Right. Mm. I wanted to see just how do you feel about eating? How in control do you feel about eating? How able are you to stop eating when you've had enough food? How adaptable are you if you're in a situation where the one foods that you allow yourself isn't available? Those sorts of things all promote health. That was what I wanted to look at in measuring eating competence as opposed to food knowledge. Oh, look, if anyone is listening and they're doing research in the area of food, the, the eating competence thing is so important, right? It completely is. So anyone who is listening who isn't familiar with eating competence as a concept should look up Ellen Satter, mm-hmm. who yeah. created the eating competence scale that I used, as well as a whole massive body of work around eating competence more broadly. Mm-hmm. And what did you find? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose if I jump through a few of the results, pick me up anywhere that you want me to sort of expand a little bit. Mm, mm. What I found across my sample was that the mean eating competence, so the average score that women across the sample got was 29.4 out of 48. And the clinical cutoff for eating competence is 32. So on the whole, I didn't have an eating competence sample out of my, you know, convenient sample of Australian women. So people didn't score highly enough to meet that cutoff for eating competence. On average, that's right. So if you took 32 as your cutoff, yeah. 45% of my sample were at 32 or above and 55, so the majority, were below 32. Yeah, so more than half the sample were below that. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Wow, well, that says a lot, doesn't it? So yeah. the majority okay. of the people that you're talking to are not connected to their bodies. Yeah, or connected to some degree, but not to a sufficient degree to be considered eating competent. And again, it's a convenient sample, admittedly, but it's a pretty good, in terms of the distribution that I had, it's a pretty good picture of a non-clinical population of Australian women. Yeah, Um, and just just to butt in that, non-clinical means like people who aren't sick. Well, people who haven't been recruited through their status as being sick. So there may have been women who immediately identify as having eating disorders in my sample but they weren't recruited as eating disorder patients they were recruited as Australian women Mm -hmm. okay so you found that the majority really Mm. weren't connected or you know in some ways Mm. not connected and what else did you find I also found and this is where I start to get a little bit statistical (laughs) so if if it's getting a little bit sort of overly numerical just pull me back I'll talk Um, you down I'll talk you down Oh, can do. <laughs> what I found was an inverse correlation between eating competence and social media related body image concern. So I had the scale measuring body image concern attached to social media and I had the scale measuring eating competence. And what I found was the higher your score for concern about body image, then the lower your score for eating competence was. Yeah. Okay. So that's beautifully described. Yeah. First you did it as a statistician and then you did it as a translator. So that's, yeah. yeah. Cool. <laughs> so the more worried you are about your body, the less okay you are with food. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then beyond that, there were some specific little drivers, which might be interesting to some people. So looking at the particular items on the social media scale, the things which had a much stronger sort of relationship to that higher social media concern and to that lower eating competence were things like, I need to look as thin as possible on social media. So if you were likely to score high on that, you were less likely to score high on eating competence. Feeling insecure about my body in contrast to others' bodies on social media was similar. So was needing to think about the opinions of others before I post a picture of my body on social media. And so was the statement, I feel pressured by social media to lose weight. So if you gave that a high score, and I think that's awful that you should be in a position to have, you know, just this thing in your phone that makes you feel like you need to lose weight. If you had a high score there though, then you were far more likely to have a low score across eating competence. Yeah. 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 So, oh gosh, did that surprise you or was that what you were expecting to find? To be honest, yeah, I was open to what I might find, but it is not surprising once you actually look at it just living as a woman in the world. And at the time that I did the study, I was 35. So I was exactly in the middle of the age cohort. Yeah. 
But it, it doesn't seem all that weird to hear, oh, yeah, the, the more worried you are about your body across all of these different dimensions, the less likely you are to be able to, you know, manage your hunger and satiety cues without reference to a diet program to tell you what and when to eat. Yeah, well, it does make logical sense, doesn't it? If you're concerned mm. about your body, you're going to opt out of your body and opt in to diet culture. Mm, correct. Yeah, circular. That's, that's a neat little segue. <laughs> uh-huh. One of the other elements of the survey that I delivered, I asked women or participants to name the different search terms that they use on social media or name the types of information that they look for when they go looking specifically if they go looking specifically for nutrition information via social media. Interesting question. Yeah, and it it gave us some interesting data. And I think this is really getting to that nub of, you know, the start of our conversation about Fitzbo making me want a Spitzbo. Uh, I'm going to get angry, aren't I? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So what I did in all of the responses that I got to that, that was a text-based response, and then I manually coded or everyone's responses just fit into, you know, one of a few categories. Mm. So if women said that they were looking for fitspo or thinspo or before and after photos or any of that kind of inspirational, you can do it too, all you have to do is try hard enough, there are no social determinants of health, <laughs> any of those <laughs> kinds of things, then I coded that as one group, which I just branded inspo just for sake of, you know, brevity. Inspo, yeah. And so anyone who was looking on social media for any of that inspo type stuff was going to have like statistically what I found was that they had a lower average eating competence by about three points. There was a significant drop in eating competence there for inspo searches and they were going to have about five points higher level of concern around their social media based body image stuff. Wow. Yeah. So it fits both. And, oh. and the rest of the inspo category are actively doing harm. <laughs> if, you yes. take, if you take low eating competence and high social media related body image concern as both harmful, which I do. I do too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, you found that link, you found that correlation mm. between yeah. I am looking at Fitzbo, I am extremely body concerned. Mm. Yeah. And I am not eating competent. Yeah. And that goes against the sort of anecdotal view. Like people sort of recognise Thinspo, for example, as being associated with pro-anorexic kind Mm. of content. People understand Mm. that Thinspo is just about looking as skinny as you possibly can. Mm. But they often, at at the population level, don't understand that Fitzbo is exactly the same as that. No, they don't. I remember having a little bit of a a tay-tay-tay with Kayla Itzines on Mm. Triple J on Hack. And she was just insistent that she was inspiring people. And I I wish I'd had your study at that time to say this is, well, I don't think it would have been heard (laughs) because that's the problem, right? Maybe by your listeners though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, I I was talking about it's definitely not inspiring everyone. We're definitely seeing this huge increase in eating Mm. disorder behaviour in people Mm. and an enormous spread of dissatisfaction. And if you're inspiring people, why isn't anyone getting better? Yeah, exactly. Why are rates of all of these eating disorders on the increase? Yeah, yeah. So that's a really interesting, you found that direct correlation with those Mm. search terms. Mm. So the only thing that was worse for eating competence and body image concern in the categories that I looked across was search terms that were associated specifically with changing your body. So mm. your inspo sort of category of, oh, wow, yeah, we can all do this. We just have to consider that, you know, all of that sweat is fat crying bullshit. That's pretty bad. That's pretty damaging. More damaging is looking up terms such as weight loss or flat belly or anything where it was specifically about a body part or an overall body and making it different. Yeah, yeah. Pretty so much everything the body. Yeah. Pretty much everyone who wanted to make their body in some way different wanted to make it smaller or not as round. There were a couple of people in the data who were talking more about bodybuilding, but, you know, the Mm. absolute vast majority were about being smaller, looking at weight loss, that kind of thing. And those women were a full 10 points less eating competent than the rest of the sample. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) So 
people pursuing weight loss are really, really away from all of this. Yeah. And their body image concern was the highest in the sample as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's great stuff to unearth. It's good to know. It's, it's shit to know, but it's good to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's great stuff to know, but it is horrifying. It's a really horrifying and sad picture that mm. this is where we're at. This is, and when we consider that our, I'm just going to use air quotes here, weight loss methods mm. are doomed to failure, that this, this is just going to increase that whole cycle over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. A bit depressing, really. Little. <laughs> <laughs> did you find anything cheerful in your research? <laughs> I did find a couple of little promising elements. Yeah. So... I, I suppose the caveat on this is that I found more promising things in relation to eating competence than I did in relation to body image. Okay. So it seems like at some levels, some of my sample were pretty good at sorting through all of the shit in terms of nutrition information and in terms of determining how to eat for their own bodies, but mm -hmm. they were less adept at also translating that into how they felt about their bodies. Mm. So things that were protective of eating competence were looking at information on social media which aligned with health at every size. Yay! Yay! I know. <laughs> Yay! So within my sample, I had a small but large enough to be statistically significant number of women looking at health at every size related content. Oh, and yay! They came in at an average eating competence of 31.98. Woohoo! 32, which is the clinical cutoff. <laughs> so yeah. Go, hey, searches. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so look at that shit. If you're not looking at that sort of stuff already and you yeah. get better at your eating competence, then go look at it. Health at every size is awesome. Oh, my God. So I just need to just rant, like, not rant, rave a bit about that finding because I think one of the concerns that people sometimes have when they're coming to Hayes mm. is if I do this, I'm going to eat, like, no million yeah. donuts every day. Yeah, I, I'm gonna. I, it's giving up on myself. I'm gonna lie on a couch. I'm just, I'm giving in. I'll become a hairy legged, you know, rampant feminist or something. You know, mm -hmm. I'll I'll be really in bad shape. But what you're saying is that when you do look at the hay stuff, and you'll learn eating competence, which is actually really taking good care of your body. Exactly, and eating competence is associated with all kinds of physical and psychosocial health. Yes. You're good, like it's good for your mental health as well as it's good for your gut health as well as it's good for your cardiovascular health. Yeah, it's good all round. Mm-hmm. Good for the planet. It is good for the planet. <laughs> it's bad for the weight loss industry. Poor them. I know, I know. <laughs> that is a really encouraging finding. Mm. Yeah, and, so, and that's quite, um, I find as a therapist in this area that, Eating competence is a skill that you can learn. You can learn it. It isn't, you know, a quick fix, but you can definitely learn it and it can show up quite quickly in your life. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So that always encourages me that even though diet culture sucks us away so much from our own bodies, that we can come back in. Yes, absolutely. Mm, brilliant. So that's one really positive finding from my perspective from the study, that there are ways that you can relate to food and eating and your body which support health, and which, you know, social media gives you an avenue to learn more about if you can also ignore all of the diet culture bullshit. Mm, mm, absolutely. Other positive findings were women, or I should say participants, who looked up recipes. They were significantly more likely to be closer to eating competent than the rest of the sample as well. So not quite as high as Hayes, but they got 31.7. So that would also round up to 32. That's across any category of recipe searching. So I didn't get into the nitty gritty around whether they were looking for toddler friendly recipes or, you know, yeah. map recipes or whatever it might've been. I could do, but you know, in, what I was interested in just at the high level, I'm looking for any kind of recipe is that that's promoting health, through taking that element of agency, like, oh, I'm actually going to do a practical thing about what I'm eating, and that seems to support eating competence. The other yeah. thing that I think it does from a more sort of eating competence, health at every size aligned perspective is it helps introduce 
food to the diet, like novel foods. If I've, you know, suddenly been given this random ingredient that I found somewhere cheap at the shop and I can jump on social media and find out what to do about it it or what ways I could eat it, that encourages ongoing, you know, curiosity about food. Mm, that is awesome yeah I do find that with people that I work with too like when you start doing you call it eating competence but I call it intuitive eating mm. people have food adventures and and do start cooking weird stuff or cooking for the first time in years and mm. yeah it's a bit of an it's, it's awesome I love when people talk about their new adventures and new recipes and new things that they're trying so that makes sense too yeah 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 no and it's exactly that so I thought that was a really positive finding. And it's something that I found across all socioeconomic positions as well and all age groups. So it's not something where I'm sort of saying, oh, well, you know, as long as you're in the top decile of socioeconomic areas within Australia, then you can do this because you've got access to all of your, you know, fancy ingredients. This can be done at any level. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Socioeconomic spectrum, you know, women across my sample and across those socioeconomic positions were doing this looking for recipes and it was supporting their eating competence yeah take that Gwyneth Paltrow mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so then the final thing that I found that was specifically protective of eating competence not of social media related body image concern unfortunately but eating competence at least was curating your feed ah and this, is, this emerged in my qualitative data. So where I had asked those questions, like what sort of stuff do you look for? I had also asked a question around how do you gauge whether information is safe and reliable? And lots and lots of women said, I don't even bother. I just take things at face value. Mm. But what a number of women said was I actually curate my feed. So I do due diligence on X number of pages that I want to follow. And I follow those so that then I know I can trust them. And oh, so examples in that were think that there were a lot of hazel-lined group, groups and pages listed or someone might have said, I follow Thinking Nutrition because I know that guy is a professor of dietetics and nutrition, you know, that kind of thing. People were actively taking an interest in make, managing what information came across their feed in the first place. And if they described any behaviour around that, so I didn't make any kind of judgments or analysis on which pages they were and weren't following mm. But if they did any kind of deliberate management of their social media feed, that was also protective of eating competence. Wow, that's really important. Mm. Yeah. So, and that again, it was across all age groups and it was across all socioeconomic positions. So again, it's a modifiable behaviour that can be applied across the population in terms of helping people just take that little bit more control over their social media environments, which will have a knock-on effect mm their health oh absolutely and we you know i talk about that to clients all the time about the importance of looking at what you're being told by social media and mm. getting rid of anything that makes you feel bad and replacing it with something that makes you feel like it's more in line with what we're doing because mm. social media can be used for good or for evil oh of course it can mm. and yeah taking control and using your critical thinking like Hmm, is this scientific study about turmeric really scientific? <laughs> <laughs> or is this in the woo science category? And yeah, using using a combination of critical thinking and curation mm. is really powerful. Absolutely. And, and so I love that your research is cutting across all the socioeconomic divides. And it's it's lovely because we can do something no matter if we're rich or poor. Yeah, exactly. It was actually an interesting finding that across all of the statistical stuff that I ran, there were no significant social gradients. So a, a social gradient at a statistical level is where you see at one end of the spectrum, everyone doing really well. And at the other end of the spectrum, everyone's doing really poorly. So oh, right. in health promotion all the time, we hear about how obesity has a social gradient. Yeah. Uh, I hate using that word. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but we hear it all the time. You know, you're much likely to be in a smaller body if you're in a socioeconomically advantaged position mm. and much more likely to be in a larger body if you're in a socioeconomically disadvantaged position. Mm. That kind of social gradient applies to all kinds of other health issues as well. But it didn't apply here. So mm. you have equal chance of being eating competent or not in relation and having social media related body image concern or not, irrespective of where you are on the socioeconomic spectrum yeah. and the approaches which were protective of eating competence were evident across the socioeconomic perspective. <laughs> spectrum. Spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Awesome. Um, that's a lovely thing to know. It's so empowering. Because mm. mm, there's so much that we really can't do a lot about. But here we go. We mm. can do something about this. It's accessible. It's there. It's even free. Yeah, exactly. It's just about some skills. <laughs> yeah, it's just about, yeah, approaching it with a bit of wisdom and self-protection. Mm. Because we've got to stop pretending that Fitzbo is a good thing, for example. Mm. <laughs> it's just not. It's shit. It's a good thing if you want to buy more products from diet culture, mm. but it's not going to be a good thing for your eating and food relationship. And it's definitely not going to be good for your body image. No. Mm. And that was an interesting. So when you're looking at your findings, are you saying that protective factors didn't really impact on body image stuff? Correct. So what it looks like is in terms of taking that amount of control over what I see on social media through either looking at haze stuff or looking at recipes or making a point of curating my feed, all of those things are protective of my eating competence. I'm much more likely to be eating competent if I do those things. I haven't really got any data out of my study at least that says that following any of those things or anything else, any of the other variables that I examined are specifically protective of body image related concerns. Mm, what do you make of that? I think what it might be is that we're sort of, we're in a position where a lot of people in the sample are able to assess for woo or assess for snake oil or assess yeah. for commercial interests underpinning a buy my five day bikini diet, whatever thing. Mm. And they can say, right, I know that's crap. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to eat what my body tells me that I should mm. eat. Or I'm going to try this new recipe because I might enjoy it. And hey, food enjoyment is actually good for health. Yeah. But all of those ads that they're sort of skilled in discounting still carry all of those cultural norms around what bodies are supposed to look like. So even if you can look at the text on something and go, right, I know that's crap, you can't necessarily look at the images that accompany it and say, also, that is not the only body that I'm allowed to have in my culture. Yeah, yeah, it's not like we, we can't... That's not something that I've sort of got really robust data on, but that's my interpretation of why did I get a null finding there. Yeah, yeah, well, we can't unsee images. Mm. And images do have a powerful impact on us. And as a, you know, a therapist working in this area, I find that people's eating behaviour and relationship with food tends to change first. And it tends to change more easily mm. but what is much more difficult is trying to help people let go of the thin ideal yeah or, or to actually kind of develop a relationship with their own body that's not to do with appearance yeah so body image is like the driver for eating disorders like i call it it's like an engine room of dissatisfaction so i think it's definitely helpful to curate your social media and, and use your critical thinking mm. but body image work unfortunately needs maybe a bit more of a deep dive yeah i completely agree with that i suppose if you were looking for practical things to do around body image in the social media space based on my findings even if i didn't find anything that was protective as we discussed earlier i did find things that were harmful towards body image so you mm. could try and avoid those things. Even if I can't give you anything that's going to be a silver bullet fix, you could stop following Fitzpo. You could stop looking for weight loss tips. <laughs> uh, those things may then, you know, bring you back in line with everyone else. Yeah. It's that lovely idea of let's first, first do no harm. Mm. Do no mm. further harm to yourself and your beautiful body. Yeah, exactly. With this shitty culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wow. Is there anything else you wanted to tell us about from your research? Look, I suppose I'm really glad to have been able to talk about it at least this much today. I guess when I was doing the research, I was looking at it from a perspective of what can health promotion and health communication practitioners do. So I suppose we've talked about what can individuals do, but I think at a more sort of professional level, we can also be talking about what else can we be doing to people to be in this space. So, you know, mm. Not everyone's going to listen to this podcast and go, oh, great. I just need to look up a recipe, look at some haze feeds on social media and then just, you know, sift out a few other bits and pieces and I'm going to be sorted. Lots of people will actually need assistance to develop what we call meta-literacy skills mm -hmm. in e-health. 
that's something that needs actual attention as opposed to just saying, oh, here's another infographic. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. we, as practitioners, we need to be thinking around what can we do in this space differently that will actually develop those personal skills. So developing personal skills for health is an absolutely foundational principle of health promotion, but it, it can't just be assumed to stop at giving information about health. No, we need actively to teach people how to do these things like curating their feed. You know, they yeah. sound simple. We talk about them as being quite simple, but you know, maybe they're not, maybe we're both so steeped in it because we're practitioners in this area and other women would say, I don't know how to do that. I think it's, you know, a lot of us are just socialized and alive and just, you know, in it and taking a step back and seeing the forces that are operating on us mm. is really, really important. And that's what we do, like in Untrapped, for example, we do this literacy stuff. We talk Mm. a lot about getting that critical eye on diet culture and seeing it for what it really is. And I think that without, that's such an important piece of the pie that without Mm. it, we're going to be permanently susceptible to the weight loss wolves. Yes, absolutely correct. Mm. I think the other thing that we can do at a practice level, and I know that this is definitely part of Untrapped and it's part of a whole range of other brilliant, again, Hayes-aligned businesses and practices and social media feeds and so on and so forth, is representing diversity better. So, yeah. so much health communication is still about thin white people smiling on some, <laughs> you know, hyper, hyper green grass. <laughs> I know, or like laughing at apples. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think morally anyone who is working in health communication that uses images of people needs to use diverse images of people to represent this idea that health can look any way in fact what we're showing you in this image is not health we're showing you a person to convey some aspects of health behavior we're not actually giving you all of their bloods, for example, to tell you whether they're healthy or not. It's just a picture of a person. And so we need to be able to see representation of all people in the images. A thought just occurred to me about just how important what you're saying is because in at the moment what we have, because health promotion or government, you know, sort of stuff all has the same kind of, just to use a cliche, but the thin white woman. Mm always or the thin muscular type white man Hmm. we can't differentiate health promotion messages from social media messaging because it's also one-dimensional so if imagine a world where health promotion really did embrace diversity and pummeled us with diversity then we'd suddenly see just how fake social media looks yeah correct there'd be a discrepancy so i think that's a great idea Yeah, I think the real challenge, speaking from my background working in the not-for-profit sector for the last 15-odd years, I think one of the real challenges that we as a sector have experienced is funding communication efforts in the first place and then funding communication strategy, which actually looks at what are our messages trying to be that are different as opposed to what can we borrow from what the commercial world is doing without really engaging critically with how we might position ourselves differently. Mm, Yeah, critical thinking again. I used to work for a disability organisation and it was the eternal struggle. Can we use some pictures of people with disability that aren't people in wheelchairs? Not because the lived experience of people using wheelchairs isn't valid, but because there are so many other people who need to be represented in this space Mm. that you may not convey through a picture. Yeah, so important. (laughs) You know, lots of disability is invisible, but that doesn't mean that you don't try and find other ways to engage those people and help them see other images of people like them. Mm. Just seeing ourselves and our glorious diversity is yeah. a wonderful step forward. Oh, thank you so much. This has been such an interesting conversation and it's timely because, you know, we're in summer and Christmas mm. season and the hype is at full volume. So Yeah, it is. And it's only going to increase over January. Oh, uh, don't Yeah, I know. Oh, turn it up to 11. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Where can people find, because your research is up on Facebook, isn't it? Yeah, so I've done a a research summary on my Facebook page. The page is the page that I originally recruited study participants through. So you can go back in the history and look at, you know, what sort of posts I use to engage that number of women as well. But if you go to facebook.com slash taps, likes, tweets, eats. (laughs) All right. And I will put it in the show notes as well. Awesome. 
easily click through. Yeah, so but, that's the page. And then the most recent album is a range of pictographs that show what the background and then what the findings of the study were. Yeah, oh, definitely. It's really worth a look, worth checking out, worth sharing far and wide. Yes, and, yes, uh, do share. Click that share. <laughs> and of course, your research is going to get published, right? Yeah, so I'm working on that currently and that's something which I'll keep updating via that page as and when different journals actually publish different parts of the paper. Yeah, oh my God, I can't wait. So when this is published, this is going out there, you know, we can really spread it around and jump up and down because this is a very large sample of mm. Australian women telling it like it is and yeah. we need to listen to them and learn from it. So thank you so much for doing this work. It's so important. Thank you. I'm just glad that I've, I've gotten to it and, you know, done it and that now people are hearing it and saying, you're right, this was really interesting and important. So it's great to have so many other people sort of jumping on and going, yes, this is information that we need to be sharing because the current environment is harming people. Yeah, let's give it, yeah, let's give it a rest. Let's change it and make it work for people, not against them. Mm. Oh, thank you so much, Hilary. Lovely to talk to you. Yeah, and you. Thank you. That was the incredible Hilary Smith talking all things social media and how we can do so much to protect ourselves, improve our body image, hopefully, and definitely improve our relationship with food if we just step away from these dangerous messages. Such an important conversation. I really hope you got a lot out of it. And if you are getting a lot out of this podcast, then please head to iTunes and make sure you give us a really nice rating and review so that the message can get out to more and more people. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss a single moment of each episode as it drops. I'm very much looking forward to coming back and chatting to you all again next week. In the meantime, if you're kind of lonely without the podcast, head across to untrapped.com.au and download our free ebook, which is called Why Everything You've Been Told About Weight Loss Is Bullshit. I love this ebook because it was written by me and my good friend Fiona Willer, accredited, well, advanced accredited practicing dietitian and research ninja when it comes to all things weight science. It's a fascinating read. It's all scientifically backed and it really gives you the rock solid evidence as to why a non diet haze approach is literally not just the only ethical thing that we can do, but the only rational thing we can do when it comes to taking care of our bodies. And of course, if you are struggling and looking for some help and support in a more structured way, come to the Untrapped community because we have our three-month masterclass where we're helping people to transform their relationships with food, their relationships with their body and their relationships with moving and also developing a very critical eye when it comes to diet culture and just a hell of a supportive community that's building in there as well. Okay, I think that's all for me this week. But I, as I said, I can't wait to meet you all next week as we step ever closer to that Christmas period. Stay safe until then, everybody. And remember, trust no one. Think critically. Push back against diet culture. Untrap from the crap. <laughs>